Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. I februar 2016 rakte den amerikanske senator Elizabeth Warren ud efter forfatteren og journalisten Barry Lynn. Han blev ringet op og spurgt, om han ikke havde lyst til at komme til en middag hjemme hos senatoren. Elizabeth Warren var nemlig bevidst om, at Barry Lynn i 20 år havde interesseret sig for globaliseringens ødelæggende effekter på den amerikanske økonomi. Og hun havde forstået, at Barry Lynn havde udviklet en teori om, hvorfor de store monopoler i den amerikanske økonomi var så enormt skadelige for det amerikanske demokrati. Barry Lynn sagde selvfølgelig, at han ville gerne komme til middag hjemme hos senatoren. Han ville bare gerne have lov til at tage nogle folk med. Han tog sin ven Teddy Downey med, som havde været med til at beskrive og udvikle en kritik af de amerikanske monopoler i lang tid. Så tog han to unge studerende med. Den ene er Lina Khan, som på daværende tidspunkt var på Yale, og den anden var Jonathan Cantor. De fire var til middag hjemme hos Warren, og det var, ifølge Berlin, ikke nogen uforglemmelig kulinarisk oplevelse. Men det blev en uforglemmelig politisk oplevelse. For den aften fortalte de Elizabeth Warren om, hvordan de så den amerikanske økonomi, og hvorfor de mente, man skulle genfortolke hele den amerikanske konkurrencelovgivning, og hvorfor de mente, at man blev nødt til at gentænke hele den måde, som den amerikanske økonomi er struktureret på, hvis man ville have en økonomi, der ikke modarbejdede demokratiet, men faktisk faciliterede det amerikanske demokrati. Der gik ikke mere end en måned efter det møde, så ringede Elizabeth Warren igen til Barry C. Lynn og sagde, at hun ville holde en tale om opgør med monopoler, om han ikke også ville holde en tale ved samme lejlighed. Det sagde han selvfølgelig ja til. Kort tid efter var opgøret med monopolerne i den amerikanske økonomi blevet til en del af flere demokratiske politikers agenda, og det dukkede også op hos republikanerne. Donald Trump samlede også opgøret med monopolerne op. Så det møde den vinter i 2016, det blev til starten på det store opgør med giganterne i den amerikanske økonomi, som det politiske system i Washington har foretaget over de seneste 4-5 år. For Barry C. Lynn var det en personlig triumf. Han havde allerede i 2004 skrevet bogen End of the Line, som handlede om forsyningskædernes skrøbelighed, globaliseringens urimelighed og monopolernes enorme skadelighed på hele det amerikanske samfund. Han havde i mange år oplevet, at han sagde det, der var rigtigt, og folk så på ham, som om han var tosset. Han havde set, hvordan demokraterne stillede sig i spidsen for en konkurrencelovgivning og en frihandel, som ødelagde meget af deres egen base. Og han havde set, hvordan arbejderklassen forlod demokraterne og stemte på Donald Trump ved valget i 2016. Efter Joe Biden er blevet præsident, er Lina Khan blevet ansat som en meget højtstående embedsmand i hans administration. Det samme er Jonathan Cantor. Og mange af de tanker, som Barry Lynn gik alene med, er en dag en del af den amerikanske præsidents samlede økonomiske politik og samlede handelspolitik. Hvis man vil forstå det forsøg på at opgøre med den amerikanske kapitalisme, som Joe Biden har sat i gang, så er det en rigtig god idé at høre, hvad Barry C. Lynn har at fortælle om historien, aktualiteten, hvor fronterne står i dag og hvorfor han er overbevist om, at de er i gang med at vinde deres kamp. Det her er min samtale med Barry Lynn. Thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us. Yeah, no, it's great to great to spend some time with you. And you know, when I read uh, the end of the line, and I read it quite late actually, I read it only a, a couple of of years ago, 
And that was just under the, during the pandemic, when we were all becoming aware of the fragility of the supply chains. But, but that was extremely in, uh, insightful very early. It's almost 20 years ago. So I'm curious, how did you come up with, with this analysis? How did you see it? Uh, you know, it kind of slapped me in the face, you know, because I, uh, I was working as a journalist at the time. Um, like through the, uh, through the 1990s, I worked as a journalist in, on uh, running a business magazine called Global Business here in Washington. And, uh, you know, so we were very involved at a very early stage in studying like how corporations were actually organizing their physical manufacturing operations and the new era of globalization. And, uh, you know, so we knew all about supply chains and we knew about logistics and we knew about, you know, how you finance and we knew about, you know, cho choosing where to put your factories. Um, and it seemed for a while that we were getting, globalization meant more of everything everywhere. And then there was this earthquake in Taiwan, September 21, 1999. And within a couple of days, all these factories around the world shut down in California and Texas and China and Europe. And it was because, as we learned, that it had disrupted, the quake had disrupted the shipment of semiconductors from a single factory city in Taiwan, Sinju, uh, to these other places. And what it proved was that a certain kind of semiconductor was being made in one place in the world, a very important semiconductor in one place in the world. So that's, you know, when, we, when we're four years old, we're taught, don't put all your eggs in one basket. And here was proof with this earthquake that all of these corporations, very smart corporations, had put all their eggs in one basket. And all of these countries had put all their eggs in one basket, all their chips in one basket. and. Uh, I was like, wow, that shouldn't be. That's kind of crazy. That's really crazy because Taiwan is on a, obviously it's on a literal fault line, an earthquake fault line, but it's also on a political fault line. And uh, uh, so that was the window that opened for me because I, I was staring at this, 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 this issue of, you know, uh, how people organize industrial systems. And then here is proof that there was this fantastic flaw in the structure of the industrial system on which we all depend. So that's that's how I came to this. That was the slap that sort of woke me up. And uh, uh, and it took me a while to figure out what was what had happened, you know, because, you know, no, since nobody understood it, people didn't understand what I was asking. You know, I was the crazy person. And but and there's of course the fragility of the supply chains and and the vulnerability of it that all of a sudden we're depending on on things that are out of our political control and things that we don't even know uh, out of our, our political control. But you saw some some grave dangers as well that were that were even more radical than that. What were the dangers that you saw in this new economic order? Yeah, so it was it wasn't just the the break the potential breakdown for of systems. And actually, if you track this out, it could be, it's really quite terrifying because we can imagine fundamental systems of production on which we depend for drugs, for food, for just the most vital of goods, breaking down, seizing up tomorrow. 
in ways that deprive us of things that we need. But then this other risk is a political risk. You know, it's when you put all of your capacity uh, inside the borders of another country, that country, you're basically giving the people who run that country, the people who control that border, a power over you. And uh, so what we look at today is we actually see that, um, you know, China especially, but there's other countries as well to whom that we have given the power to shut down our economy or to shut down portions of our economy, key portions. And uh, so this is the power to essentially coerce the United States, coerce Europe, coerce other democracies, coerce other nations, um, non-democratic nations also, uh, to do things in exchange for getting the goods that you need. Uh, you know, so this was the is the other threat. And I'd say actually the there's a corollary to that threat, you know, which is that when you give someone that kind of temptation, you actually make them more likely to engage in risky behavior. You know, I would in Europe, why did Putin, why did Putin decide to invade Ukraine? Many reasons, you know, he'll give you. But one of the temptations was the fact that he thought he had Germany and other nations in Europe by the neck because of his control over oil and gas. Now, we got lucky, you know. Um, it proved to be a little bit less of a chokehold than we thought. But I would venture to say that part of his calculation when he decided to make the first move across the border was based on the idea that he'd be able to bring Germany to its knees. Yeah, and I, and I think that's definitely when many of the points that you made almost 20 years ago, that's when we we they became almost physical here in Europe, that we depend on him, that our entire economy and infrastructure depend on him, not so much here in Denmark, but but but, but in Germany and, uh, and, and Eastern Europe, especially. You know, normally when we tell the history of neoliberalism here, we either go by the history of ideas, as Quinn Slobodian put, put it out, or we point to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. And something that was surprising to me, of course, many people here on the left consider Bill Clinton a kind of ideological traitor or something like that. But he was actually very, very influential in establishing this this regime. What was the vision of, of Bill Clinton in, in, in establishing this regime? Yeah, and I think it's a, uh, so Bill Clinton, so you're right. I mean, Ronald Reagan had a huge effect on this. So Ronald Reagan was, it was when Ronald Reagan was elected. He was elected in November 1980, took power in, in January 1981. He brought with him the Chicago School Economists. He brought with him the Chicago School vision of economic regulation, law and economics which was basically making law subject to economic considerations, to efficiency considerations. And this was most important when it came to uh, the regulation of power, you know, through anti-monopoly law, uh, through traditional regulatory regimes. Um, so that's what Reagan did in 1980. So when we look back to Reagan, yeah, he's the guy that started the process. But what we forget is that, or what we never really looked at very carefully, is that what Reagan did is he brought it to antitrust, to what the, here in the United States, what the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Communication, uh, the Federal Trade Commission do. 
But that's just a piece of the overarching political economy. What Bill Clinton did is he brought it to agriculture. He brought it to banking. He brought it to, uh, to communications platforms. He brought it to the media. He brought it to the defense industrial base. He brought it to trade. He took the ideas of Ronald Reagan and applied it to the international trading system. And, and you know, with the Uruguay round of GATT uh, in December of 1994, which was the foundation of the world trade, the WTO. So Ronald Reagan started the process, but Bill Clinton is the one who finished the process. Now, did Bill Clinton himself fully understand what he was doing? Well, in the same way that Ronald Reagan didn't really understand what he was doing, uh, I would say Bill Clinton really didn't understand. But his advisors, people like Larry Summers, they fully understood what they were doing. So they were operatives. And uh, this is the, so this was the world that they wanted to create. Looking back, is there a kind of historical justice in the fact that, that when the Democrats, they lost to Donald Trump? They the trade agreements were a centerpiece of, of, of that. They were part of that campaign. They were central to that campaign. And she was running uh, on his trade policies. And the Democrats lost the workers over a couple of decades running back to. So it was it kind of a, a consequence of the policies that were put in place back then? Absolutely. And it's it's and what's, uh, you know, unfortunately for you know Hillary Clinton is she understood that her husband's trading policies were were mistaken. She had taken a pretty anti-China stance in her own uh, policies, but the Obama administration did not. The Obama administration was still following the basic playbook of Bill Clinton's administration. So when in the election of 2016, it was What happened in the fall of election of, of 2016 is even as Hillary was trying to distance herself from the old ways, the Obama administration came in and said, hey, let's let's pass TPP because trade's going to set us free. Trade's going to make the world peaceful. And the Trump the Trump uh, uh, team jumped on that and they just made apps, you know, as much use as they could of this backward looking approach of the Obama administration. So absolutely, absolutely, that was a huge issue. And you, you must have, you you made this analysis long time ago. You were watching the Democrats, you were watching Obama continue these, these trade policies. What was it like looking at that from a distance and having written that book and you put your analysis out there? You know, there's this period, you know, when you're doing something by yourself, when you really do feel crazy, you know, because you've, Uh, you, 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 you know, you've made a case and it's a provable case. It's like this is a, you're pointing at physical choke points and you're saying this physical choke point, when you put all of everything in one place, it's dangerous. And you have a hundred economists in a room looking at you and saying, no, there's something wrong with your analysis. <laughs> there's something wrong with your um, your philosophy, with your theory uh, that, you know, it's like it's. Um, Luckily, I'm a stubborn person, so I, I just keep pushing forward. Uh, you know, so it's uh, what you do is you, for a long time, you know, the way I looked at it, it was capture one soul at a time. 
You know, if yeah. every week we could, would catch one soul at the end of the year, you had 52 new people who agreed with you, right? And, uh, you know, so, uh, and that was progress. And so th that's how we operated, you know, for, for many years is just, you know, whoever we could convince uh, uh, and we would celebrate every single person we brought over. And then over time, you, you, you initially it's like a parabolic curve it's like over time um you start the curve starts to bend upwards people are talking to each other you there's a conversation that's going on in, in public so uh so and then um uh, so you start to see a, a real uptake in in uh, on some of the philosophy or some of the thinking some of the analysis uh but i'll tell you it's like you know on the this industrial system until the covid we there was just really that that you know people were really resistant to that idea the belief that the trading system that free trade absolute laissez-faire equals peace and prosperity uh it was a religion it was a true religion and uh now we're waking up from it um, i i heard you i think it was on the radio show on point when and you you told that elizabeth warren Uh, who, in in her thinking, seems quite close to much of what you would you that she invited you home for dinner or that she wanted to take your advice? Yeah, yeah. No, this was actually one of our big breakthroughs. It was, uh, you know, um, this was in February of 2016, and so this was uh, this was the year that Hillary was running, and and Bernie was running that year. Um, uh, and I think Warren was looking ahead to 2020 and she, um, had come across our analysis and she really just wanted to learn more about it. So her office reached out and said, Hey, um, the Senator would like to have dinner with you and can you, you know, feel free to, uh, bring along two or three people who you think would add to the conversation. So I called up Lena Khan. And who was at Yale at the time, I said, uh, Lena, can you get down to D.C. to have dinner with Senator Warren? She's like, oh, well, of course. I call up Jonathan Cantor, who lives in D.C., and he goes, count me in. And then a friend, Teddy Downey, uh, who was one of my earliest allies. And so we went over, we, we had a wonderful dinner with the senator in her office. Um, food was not perhaps the most... Uh, exciting food, but uh, the conversation was stellar. And uh, it was, you know, we get a call. I, I got a call about a month after that. And her office said, we're actually, we would like to, the Senator would like to give a speech on this issue. Uh, will you host the speech? And then I said, of course, absolutely. Uh, and so that, uh, that dinner led to a speech that this, that we hosted which the Senator delivered June 29th of 2016, which really put this issue on the map in Washington in a way that had not been true up to that time. And uh, that speech led to the Democratic Party platform putting anti-monopoly into the platform for the first time in 40 years. Uh, and it actually inspired Trump and his team to embrace a lot of this language in this analysis in the 2016 election. So suddenly we hear our language being repeated by Bannon, being repeated by Breitbart, being repeated by Trump himself. Uh, so that was the moment when it became normalized.
and 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 it seemed like very sudden that monopolies were were a problem in the American public all of a sudden, and it seemed that people were looking at at the antitrust uh, legislation again. And it's so funny because here in Europe, you know, our uh, competition commissioner Margrethe Vestager, who is Danish, she she got everything from the American antitrust tradition that that you left for for a for for a period for a period, and because I asked her. Actually, what you're doing, where's the normative foundation for this? We took everything from America. They abandoned it, but but we brought it back. But it seems that now there's a real political consensus, not only among progressives, but also some parts of the right, that monopolies are a problem that must be confronted. Do you think that that that, that this is a, a rhetorical fight, or do you think there's real political impact to it now? Oh, no, it's definitely... It's, uh... It has real impact, uh, certainly on the Democratic Party. We don't have all parts of the Democratic Party. You know, I think uh, our failure to pass the bill that Senator Klobuchar put out last session, um, you know, d- d- demonstrates that there are parts of the Democratic Party that we don't fully control. Uh, but, um, you know, I'd say, you know, rank and file, 85 percent of Democrats see this as a problem. Uh, among the leaders, I mean, among people who are in power, uh, you know, I'd say a, a clear majority see this as an issue. And the Biden administration 100% sees this as an issue. Uh, on the Republican side, there are true believers. There are true believers from the, the traditional conservative part of the Demo- of the Republican Party. And then there's the Trumpy part of the party. And so you see uh, some fire breathers on the Trumpy part, like Josh Hawley, Senator Hawley. You see, um, you know, Senator Vance from Ohio has embraced a lot of this. But even there's like some of the mainstream, more mainstream conservatives uh, are embrace certain aspects of this. And an example would be Congressman Ken Buck from from Colorado. Uh, you know, so on, on the Republican side, you know, maybe 10 percent of the leadership is really kind of with us, maybe 15. And uh, but again, with the rank and file people on the street, we're talking 85 percent of Republicans and independents will tell tell Oh, yeah, no, we got a monopoly problem in this country and we got to do something about it. So we've won the fight with the public uh, and we are winning the uh, we've largely won the fight with the Democratic Party, not completely. And we have captured a large part of the Republican Party. But not the party. There was a there was great enthusiasm here one or two years ago about Timu and about Lina Khan and and Jonathan Cantor as as about their appointments and the positions that that they took. So people think, well, now they're stepping ahead in America. We can follow their lead. See, they're taking on the big monopolies. It's 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 in your playground. It's not in in it's in your your background. It's not here in 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 Europe. There were great enthusiasm. But what what are the results of the battles so so far? Did did they really make substantial structural change, or, or is it still too early to call? Uh, yeah, no. So there's a um, the single most. You actually uh, left one key person out, and that's President Biden. So like the, the single key uh, most important change was an executive order that the president signed, and he delivered a speech. Uh, in in favor of the executive order, explaining the executive order. Uh, this was in July of 2021. 
And in this speech, the president, this is Joe Biden, you know, he's almost 80 years old. And he goes, the Chicago school philosophy, the, the ideas of Robert Bork, these were a failed experiment. This is a failed policy and we must get rid of it. So, uh, so that's, you know, what he did with a single speech, a few lines in a single speech is he threw over the entire Chicago school ideology, the entire uh, Chicago school uh, system of, 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 of policy. And uh, uh, so that was a revolution. We have not seen that kind of intellectual revolution in political economy since the Chicago school 40 years ago. We've not seen that kind of revolution in thinking in the right direction since in 80 years, you know, since FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President Roosevelt in the 1930s. Uh, so this is a, that's the most important action. It's a revolutionary action. Uh, and it basically says this so-called science that we've been using to regulate power is a false science. Um, but in terms of, you know, uh, 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 the FTC, the DOJ, they've won a number of really big, uh, they've, uh, uh, they've had a number of big victories, uh, some of which are blocking mergers, but often actually much more important are like some of the legal victories that underpin the efforts to block a particular deal. And I'll just give you one example. The DOJ blocked a, a takeover of the publisher, the book publisher, Simon Schuster, by the book publisher, Penguin Random House, which is part of the Bertelsmann Empire from Germany. And this would have brought about 60, 70% of all the books, bestsellers in the United States on the roof of a single corporation. DOJ blocked this. That on its face is fundamentally important, but they blocked it using an interpretation of the law that was revolutionary. They said, this will create monopsony power over authors, over creators, over the people who are bringing, um, you know, ideas to market. So that was what was, um, so this monop this interpretation of the law that it allows us to protect creators, suppliers, producers was revolutionary in nature. The press has totally missed this. Hmm. Right. But there's case after case after case after case where they have intentionally, this is you know, Lena Khan and Jonathan Kennedy, they've intentionally gone in and brought cases to resurrect old pieces of law and show that they still they still have an edge. In fact, we can use these new these old pieces of law to break up the great tech and other monopolists of today. When I when I read Joe uh, uh, Biden's executive order on competition in the American economy, and when I listen to what Catherine Tai was saying when she came to Davos and said, "Well, the age of efficiency is over. Now it's about resilience. It's no longer a race to the bottom. It's a race to the top." Are you hear some of the things that Lena Khan is saying? It sounds like a really grand project and a project that could appeal to working class voters as well as. As progressives, it sounds like a transformational moment in the American capitalism. But then, when I speak to American friends, they never heard of it. Uh, it it's it's and and this is such a weird paradox for me because uh, 
for me, Joe Biden is is kind of a, he's doing a big ideological battle that can win back the working class. He even has a plan to reindustrialize parts of the infrastructure so you can make green transition, make new new opportunities for workers at the same time. And it seems maybe it's just my European blindness, but I have the feeling that this great project is almost a secret in America. It's very yeah no it's not your blindness this is a it's 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 absolutely the case uh for most Americans not here in Washington in Washington everyone understands what's going on in Washington uh people understand what's at stake uh people pay a lot of attention uh but outside of Washington yeah uh, people have and I, you know it, it's a choke point problem and I'll be you know it, I mean one of the things you know 20 years ago in the United States, we had many large newspapers and we had a much more diversified uh, uh, sort of set of publications that people read. You know, we had major newspapers in California and and, and, and Washington State, you know, in, in Texas and Chicago. Now, what we really seen is a choke pointing of, of, of the news uh, um, editorial, the power of news editors in two publications, three publications. The New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal does a pretty good job of covering this issue, uh, but progressives don't read the Wall Street Journal. Progressives <laughs> read, Democrats read the New York Times or the Washington Post. And that's the that's it. That's all they read. And the New York Times has done a absolutely abysmal, irresponsible job of covering this issue. And you, you you could come up with all kinds of theories about why this is the case. I would actually just, I think the simplest explanation, which is that the journalists don't fully understand it and they're too damn lazy to try and figure it out is probably the right one. But the result is that because progressives all turn to the New York Times, they don't see it. It's a choke point problem. You know, if you when you when you allow a single publication to capture control uh, over the debate that takes place within a party, uh, that's a um, single point of failure that can be very dangerous. Yeah. As, as a journalist, I think I recognize some of it because the cultural issues has been so prominent for, for a while and the economic issues are very difficult. You know, trade policies are just technically difficult. Uh, how do you see, because when, when I heard Catherine Tai in Davos, I thought she was also echoing some of your points about the, the vulnerability of efficiency and that that she, she was very explicit about efficiency was no longer the virtue of, of America, uh, American trade policies. How radical is, is, is the shift that she's signaling in, in the American trade policy? I think it's actually it's it's very radical. And Catherine Tai has also repeatedly said that she stands uh, side by side, shoulder uh, shoulder to shoulder with Lena Khan and with Jonathan Cantor. You know, so uh, what you see is this is uh, you know for an international audience for Europeans, uh, you know, for anybody, any of our traditional trading allies, you know, democracies and non-democracies, any of our traditional trading partners. Uh, people should really understand that this is a we're, what we're seeing is the birth of a radically different approach to trade. The WTO era established in 1995 is over. 
it's dead it's it is you know uh it is extinct and you know uh now but does that mean is like is it because we're going towards a trump style america first we're going to build everything in america and we're going to lock the door after we do that uh or are we actually moving back towards a more internationalist system kind of a pre-global but more internationalist system governed by democracies not by corporations such as existed before 1995 i say that what we're doing is we're going back to the pre-1995 system which was in which international trade was governed by democratic governments to serve their national security and the security of their citizens and the prosperity of their citizens. But it was done through give and take in a way that worked for everybody. And uh, so, I, you know, what you're hearing from, from Ambassador Tai is a, it's radically new vision, but it really, it's also harkens back to a much better time in sort of the American approach to international trade before we gave all of the power and all of the controls to the corporations. But I think at least looking at it from Europe, there's there's a dilemma in, in, in these in some of these trade issues because on the one hand, people are becoming more and more critical of monopolies. And they say, well, we can't have this kind of economic inequality without undermining political e- 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 equality. We just gave away too much political power and, and autonomy. So we don't want these these grand monopolies. And but but then on the other hand, people are saying, well, look at what China did. They established a monopoly over all the rare earth metals and all the rare earth minerals, minerals. And that's because they have the investment power of, of, of the Chinese state. And in order to not lose this geopolitical battle of the future against China and about these rare earth metal and minerals. We must have grand corporations and huge public investment. And there's a little part of me that's also scared that the IRA will end up building a new green industrial complex in, in America. Is, is, is this my, my false reading or do you see the same dilemma? Yeah, actually, I'll turn to Terry Breton, who's the um, you know, a French industrialist who's now working uh, as a, in the European Commission. And... You know, he's been very vocal about the need for a new industrial policy. Now, Terry Breton, you know, uh, as is, has often been true of the French, they often fall for the idea of of national champions. We're going to, uh, you know, put everything in one box, and it's and that way we can keep track of it. And um, and we could talk about the dangers of the uh, of the national champion model, but. Uh, uh, but I think it's like what Terry Breton, the way he put it is, OK, the monopolists came in and they destroyed, they bulldozed all this capacity. So the capacity to make semiconductors, the capacity to make chemicals, the capacity to make antibiotics, the, can, the capacity to make uh, the drugs that we depend on. They've been bulldozed. It used to exist here in the United States. It used to exist in Europe. And it's gone. Where you go? It's in China. It's in, you know, maybe some's in Korea, some's in India, but it's gone. And it's now choke pointed much of it on the other side of the world. So first thing we had to do is rebuild. That's what the IRA is about. We have to rebuild some capacity, a lot of capacity in the United States and in Europe. So step one, 
rebuild. Someone has to pay for that. You know, uh, we have to pay for that. Just do it because there's no other choice. But then part two is once you've rebuilt the capacity, then you rebuild the competitive international trading system. So I think that actually the, the Germans, the German government and the French government are actually quite close to the Biden administration and understanding what must happen. Now they've had a few spats and you know there's been a couple of things that Macron has said, which are maybe not that politic, politically wise, but they agree about the, what needs to happen uh, and they agree about largely about how to make it happen. And to, there's been a spat, some of the fear in Europe, and I actually saw, um, you know, uh, Vice President Vestager speak recently in, in Brussels, and she was talking about these issues. And there's definitely fear among some of the smaller nations that the French and the Germans will exploit this moment to concentrate all the capacity in their borders. I think that's a reasonable fear. Uh, but I also think that because Europe is a much larger place than just France and Germany, uh, and that France and Germany actually didn't have the capacity to house all of the production that needs to come ashore, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine for the Netherlands. It's going to be fine for Denmark. It's going to be fine for Spain. It's going to be good for Italy. It's going to be good for Greece. So um, this is, so the key thing is, you know, uh, is, we're doing both. We're rebuilding capacity, but we're also rebuilding a, a, a trading system, a liberal international trading system that largely precludes the kind of the dangers posed by national champions that we've seen in the past. Yes, and I think it will force the European Union to reform itself because in order to, for us not to just make Germany and France great in, 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 in our European market, we must have collective debt so Italians can invest and Germans can uh, and Dutch people can invest. And so I think this will force us to become a little bit more like, like America. And we need that in order to have common trade policies. I have one last question, which is almost ideological. But when I read uh, Liberty from, from, from all masters, you, on many points, you sound like a European leftist, you know, very critical of some of, of, of the power concentrations in, in capitalism. But you're also very, very critical of those who are against capitalism as such. You're also very critical of of, uh, of the romantic rev revolutionaries. You you have a a view on on the potential, the progressive potential for markets that I think is is very inspiring. And and that position is quite rare here in in Europe. Can you explain that position? Yeah, it's relatively rare here in the United States as well. A lot of people talk about sort of free markets, you know, as a pathway to freedom. And what they really mean, and this is what the libertarians promote, is, well, we're going to get rid of all controls over capital, over the corporation, um, and we're going to give freedom, you know, we're going to give liberty to the capitalist and to the, uh, uh, you know, and to the executive. And, um, uh, and the result, what we end up with are autocratic monopolies. That's a disaster. That's what got us into this problem. Uh, but that's not American capitalism. 
that's not American capitalism and actually European capitalism post-war and often in many places pre-war was based on the idea of carefully guarding against extreme concentration of control by a few powerful people and, and protecting uh, both the, the mid-sized manufacturer, but also the family business. You know, making sure that anybody, everybody who wants to get into business, they can get into business. If they want to start a, be, uh, run a farm, if you have enough, just enough money, you can be, uh, be a farmer. If you want to uh, uh, own a bakery, you can own a bakery and you won't have that stolen from you by a powerful banker or a powerful corporation. That's a, a form of liberty, but it's also, it's good for economic performance. It makes us all richer. It results in more production. Uh, it make, it make, gives us a, a political richness and an economic richness that you can't get otherwise. Uh, so this is, this is the, that's what America was for 200 years, was this kind of, the use of the government, of the power of the government, to protect the market, open marketplaces where people are safe from predation by large corporations and powerful bankers. The open market system means the powerful banker and the all-region corporation does not exist. But just one additional question to that. Some would say that the, the abolishing that regime And, and being in this very consumer-oriented regime that has lasted for three or four decades, that, that people have become so satisfied as consumers that they're not willing to leave that, that the freedom as uh, citizens might be important for them. But in this monopoly regime, they've gotten so many technological goods and things have become so cheaper that they've won so much as consumers that, 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 that they're not ready to, 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 to abandon that. Yeah, no, well, I think it's like we're not asking, um, you know, most we're actually we're going to provide uh, people who are driven by material considerations for people for whom, you know, more stuff is actually that's what they measure their well-being by, um, you know, a more competitive system leads to a more open system, you know, a system that actually protects the innovator uh, leads to uh, lower price goods higher quality goods, more rapid innovation that's people-friendly, not corporate-friendly. Uh, so what we are promoting uh, is actually, it's good for the consumer. But it's also what we're doing is, we're saying is like, one of the things that's best for the consumer is if you take those people who really want to run a business, maybe it's it's not everybody, Maybe it's 10% of the population who are really entrepreneurial. If you protect the entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is going to serve you. If you let the giant corporations, giant banks crush the entrepreneur, you're going to end up with less. And you're going to end up with worse. Uh, so, so this is actually, you know, this is this is the way to protect democracy, but it's also the way to protect prosperity well thank you so much for your time it's been very inspiring to follow someone doing an intellectual analysis that that's not heard for a while and then all of a sudden it gets a 
breakthrough and now you're on a winning team. Thank you so much for your work, Barry Lynn, and I hope to hear from you again soon. Yeah, well, it's, uh, thank you for taking the time today. It was uh, really good to talk. Det var min samtale med Barry Lynn. Der er to bøger, som vi refererer til i samtalen. Den ene er End of the Line fra 2004, som er opgøret med forsyningskæderne. Og den anden er Liberty from All Masters fra 2022, som er opgøret med monopolerne. I næste uge, der taler jeg med den unge britiske sociolog Rosie Collington, som har været medforfatter på en meget vigtig bog sammen med Matukato, som handler om konsulentbranchens indflydelse på vores demokratier, og som handler om, hvordan man skal genopfinde staten progressivt, hvis man vil skabe et velfungerende demokrati. Den her udsendelse var ligesom vores foregående udsendelse, produceret af vores gode ven og kammerat, Mads Adam Wiener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved igen i næste uge.